sitting down with Kirk, a lot of people are like, why, are, why is Kirk in your movie? You know, what did he have to do with East Bay Punk? Well, you know, one of the, the earliest venues in the East Bay that played, that let Punk play was Ruthie's Inn, West Robinson, uh, where there was metal and punk and then thrash. And so that's why he's in it. And also, too, the same uh, white supremacist kind of, you know, long hair gangs in El Sobrante that beat up Metallica also beat up Primus and Green Day in consecutive decades. <laughs> like, you know, at, at, like in El Sobrante, in that region, it was like, and, you know, uh, Hemet was a, was a kid of color, you know, he's part Filipino, you know? And so they, he, and so when he, when I told him this, he would, he was like the gravy boys, you know? And, and I was like, yeah. And he, he kind of lit up, you know, it was like, he hadn't thought about that in years, you know? Hello and welcome back. Before we get started, I just want to let my video enjoyers know that today's video hiccups a few times during the first 30 minutes of the episode, but smooths out quickly after that. Thank you for being patient. To my audio-only listeners, you won't really be affected. And as always, please like, subscribe, ring that bell, comment, rate us five stars, and all the other things that the algorithm likes. Enjoy. Welcome to the What I Know You podcast, season two, episode 25. My name is Nick Rounds, and I will be your host. My next guest is an author, actor, musician, producer, and director. After cutting his teeth in theater, he formed a pre-Tenacious D acoustic duo to impress a girl he had a crush on. That duo became known as Bobby Joey Bola and the Children McNuggets, a Gilman Street reject band that later became a Gilman Street headliner, thanks to pure tenacity and relentless touring. After my guest tracked down some rare backyard footage of an early Green Day show, he was commissioned by Green Day to create the 2017 documentary, Turn It Around, The Story of East Bay Punk, a documentary about the creation and legacy of the legendary Berkeley, California punk club, The Gilman Street Project. Corbett Redford, wait, I know you. How are you today? I'm good, Nick. Your, your intro has me beaming. You're... <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're, a hard -working, you're a hardworking gentleman, and... From doing research of just like the the amount of things that you've done, um, not just in tackling a huge documentary of Turned Around, which took you, it was like four or five years of your life, right? Five years. Five yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good God, like half a decade of your life committed to it. Um, more, <laughs> yeah. more gray in your beard, more, you know, hours well, and hours. Yeah. I don't think I was, I was, I was pretty, pretty raven haired before I started that thing. And by the end of it, uh, the the graphic designer uh michael houghton he did a lot of digital rendering for the for the film uh he he called he called me the punk whisperer and and i, I realized like I, you know not just it wasn't just about like the the prominent folks or the rock stars in the movie you know we come from a you know punk is kind of a a subculture where there's a lot of um i don't want to say damage there's you know a lot of folks with a lot of issues so it was about a lot of patience. It was about a lot of compassion, uh, and it was about a lot of work. And by the end of it, yeah, I got I got my what, Elvira streak right here. <laughs> the old the old skunk streak. Yeah, yeah, skunk streak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but before we kick, so we're gonna 
touch on turnaround. Um, I hopefully you're not tired of talking about it, but I, I do absolutely love documentary because I think it's important to touch on it. Just like Murder in the Front Row, it's an important um, footnote in the history of Barry music. So, absolutely. thank you. Um, and then I don't know. Have you seen the um, the documentary about Ben Fong Torres recently? The guy from Rolling Stone. It's on Netflix. It's in my queue. You so, should watch it. It's really good. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. I, I view Murder in the Front Row, Turn Around, and now this new Ben Fong Torres documentary of just like the trifecta of like Bay Area important like music documentaries to me. So anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Murder in the Front Row was, I think, happening right toward the end of our production. They, they started beginning. So uh, and we worked with uh, Harry O, uh, the ballad mm. of Harry O, who was one of the photographers for that book. He's in the film and he lent us a lot of the, the photos uh, for the metal kind of part of turn it around. But anyways, I digress. It's <laughs> yeah. all good. Um, but before we kick into all the amazing work that you've done, not just for turn it around, but also for Bobby Joey Bola, um, I want to start with your influences and kind of what made you the person that you are today. Um, <clears throat> um, so what I want to start with is what, what was your relationship to music um, like growing up? And then when did you find your music? What, and you can interpret that in any way that you want to. No, that, that's an interesting question. I mean, I mean, my growing up in my house, there, it was not to start out on a on a Debbie Downer note, but there was a lot. It was a lot of tumult, a lot of it was an abusive household. And even when there was peace on, on like you know, uh, in in the other household, my my folks were separated. Uh, there was still kind of like a. a there wasn't a lot of encouragement. There was a lot of kind of uh, put making fun and all of those kinds of things, insults, right? So I think if I brought something home, I think when I was in, you know, I, it was either my mom and my sister's music, which was like Tony, 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 or or like Whitney Houston or like pop stuff, which, you know, later you can hear that influence in Bobby Joe Bola and kind of like the thing or the, the satire that we take on because it's very, it's like a known quantity to me. But my, my dad was like, KFRC, oldies, Rock and Robin, you know, Beach Boys, things like that, you know. So, but if I were to dare bring music home, you know, uh, that had any kind of strut or anything, you know, I, I think when I was in sixth grade, uh, a kid in in the class for my birthday gave me in excess kick, and I was like, oh, this this really is awesome. And then I was just kind of laughed out of my house for playing it or or to, you know, for 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 shimmying or whatever. So that at that point. It was when I was like, I was kind of like, well, Weird Al, you're my only friend, you know. Like, I, I, if if they're gonna make fun of me, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna dive into that <laughs> or lean into that, you know. So, I, I think early on it was that, and it wasn't. I mean, by by high school, I I had moved away for a couple years up to Northern California or you know, like Nevada City, uh, you know, Grass Valley area to live with my dad for a few years. I came back and a few of my friends had gotten into punk, right? And so at first, and they, I mean, so it was like a summer trip and we we went out and they played me the Ramones, Blatts, uh, the East Bay punk band, you know, and I thought, my God, this is God awful. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't dig it. And years later, I know every song by both of those bands. I, I mean, I, I just, uh, I absolutely love them. Uh, you know, so at first I couldn't, I couldn't hear the melody. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, clean pop or oldies, you know? So I, I, uh, 
but then they, somebody they also played me they might be giants which was peak something in my brain it was a little a little off it was a little math it was a little something it was a little weird and i and i and i dug it and slowly but surely um i i i things started developing that way also in high school i uh by my junior year this is kind of a late i was a late starter in this both of my friends who were in punk were also in theater and they were like corbett you're kind of a, a ham and and like you know we dare you to uh to audition for this play and i did and i got a part and i i remember very vividly being on stage during a rehearsal and i was supposed to be some sort of i don't know uh person who was like so it was in joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat and i was uh, selling joseph right and and i and the the teacher was like you're you're uh you're tired from walking through the desert and you're and you're kind of delirious and and uh i was doing this thing you know and behind me were two other students inside of a camel costume <laughs> I'm, I'm pulling them along and uh and I, I i just remember kind of doing that and snapping out of it and looking around the the classroom and the entire classroom and my teacher this older man in his 60s they were red-faced and on the ground laughing. And I was like, man, this is this is something. Like, I want to do this. And then I realized that kind of my close group of friends were were also kind of, they were leaning that way. They were all starting bands, you know. They were, they were uh, you know, making art. And I, and I just thought, I want to do this with my friends forever. I want to make people laugh. I want to, I want to sing. I want to perform. I want to do this, you know. It was kind of an escape, I guess. But how long were you doing theater for? And like, were there any other notable performances that like really stuck with you? Yeah, well, so I did. I did uh, three plays in high school. I did Camelot, where I played an old. I played Pelinor, who is the old guy in Camelot who's chasing the questing beast. And they, I always say, my first big theater role. I, I did a couple of chorus parts before that, but they they gave me a real sword, a dog, and a kid. So I think that breaks like W all of WC Fields' his initial rules of like you know <laughs> being you know show business or whatever. Uh, but then I, I I got out of that and I did a summer program, and it was the Crucible, and I got I think Governor Danforth, who's like the big judge, who's judging all of the 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 the, the girls, you know. And I think I had like fourteen monologues in that thing. And it simultaneously, we were doing Little Shop of Horrors, where I got cast as Audrey too, and that was oh wow, <laughs> the voice, yeah, the voice of the plant. So that that really kind of kicked something up in me. Uh, and then um, I was at that point, I was I was about to turn seventeen. I graduated early, and I had already was already on my own. I left home and I. Uh, tried out for the Masters Theater in Point Richmond for this, um, I don't know, is it 18th century, I guess, a play, She Stoops to Conquer, where I played this drunken brat. And uh, they gave me hair extensions and a dialect coach. And so that was a big deal for me, too. So I learned a lot from the, pe the people at that theater. Um, a lot of, you know, lifetime uh, lifers, I guess you'd say, you know. Uh, so yeah, those, the, the, that was that was kind of it. And then and then I had a pretty tragic thing happen to me, which really 
sent me toward punk, which was, uh, you know, I was out on my own. I was, uh, you know, I two jobs trying to make it no, no, uh, familic support, you know? And, uh, I, there was a, a local theater production where I was told, Hey, you know, we're going to give you this part and singing in the rain. And I was like, that was my grandfather's favorite musical. You know, I, I would love to be in that. And, uh, I came down with something at the time, uh, that was just a rotten flu. They were calling it the Beijing flu. And now that I think about that, it was, it's pretty racist, you know, like, uh, but at the time that's what they were calling it. And it, you know, I was 17 years old, you know, I was, I couldn't move for like a week or two. And I kept telling the director, I was like, Hey, I, I please, you know, give, give my part to Larry. Yee. He's my understudy. Give it, give it to Larry. Uh, you know, and he's like, Nope, no, you're going to come back. You're going to come back. And, uh, I, 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 the day I got well, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, uh, I'm going to go to, go to work and I'm going to go to the play and I'm going to come back. And I let him know that I got up in the morning. My job at the time was, I was, uh, <laughs> I would do children's parties and I was the most popular Barney, the dinosaur. So, uh, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Oh boy. Super D duper stupendous. I love you. Oh, oh. Right. So I, the, I was the Barney guy, right? So, and, uh, and uh, people are either having Vietnam flashbacks of kids' parties and or, or they're being, tuning out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 you're good. So I, I, uh, so I, I was uh, my my friend Charles, uh, awesome uh, friend of mine, was in my comedy troupe. Uh, he was like the only black metalhead in Penol. Uh He was my he would help me uh, when I would do the parties because you can't really see inside the things. And I, I went to his house. I was like, Hey Chuck, wake up, you know. You know, I'll split the money with you. You know, we'll go down and do this. He's like, "Hey, man, I'm sorry to Welch, but I gotta go. I'm gonna go to the the, the lake with uh, my friend tonight or the, today." And uh, as I was driving back from the party, um, one of our mutual friends pulled me over on the side of the freeway, which I always wondered why he found me. How how do you find somebody on the freeway? You know, he honked me down, and he got out of got out of the car, and he's like, "Chuck, Chuck drowned." And so uh, when I went to go, I called. Um, the theater and i said hey you know uh douglas and winetta chuck's parents you know they want us to come over to a vigil at their house and this guy told me uh you little rat you know uh, i'll blacklist you from every community theater from portland to los angeles uh you'll never work in this town again and you know i mean and i at that time i think it's that that's when i started wearing all black and and uh listening to a lot more punk music because I, I think the the, the the ride was over the innocence was gone you know so and it was more debbie downer stories here you know <laughs> no you're good um yeah. while you while you were talking i looked up uh she seems to conquer is from 1773 oh, okay there you go um but yeah that's what i'm here i'm always listening but sometimes i'm looking off to go google stuff while you're talking oh, that's good that's good <laughs> um <clears throat> so you formed Bobby Joey Bola to play a show in order to impress a girl that you had a crush on. That's Things true. the crush didn't work out, but you found a partner in Dan Abbott, the other half of Bobby Joey Bola and the Children McNuggets, um, your guitarist and bandmate. Can you expand on where Bobby Joe started versus what it evolved into? Whew. Wow. Uh, it, it, so, that you know, is, just the light questions. That is, that is a true story, though. You know, I, I had been writing a few songs with this English guy who, who was in the States. And uh, so I had a couple tunes lying around and, uh, and I knew Dan from school. I wanted him in my comedy troupe. 
and all the other guys they were they were a little bit vanilla and and they were like nah dan smokes pot you know he he does drugs we don't want him like what are you talking about like he's he's great he and dan like had some sketches he shared with me and uh so they i got voted voted down or whatever and so i always kind of wanted to work with him you know and uh this gal she was really big into the gilman sect at that time you know uh you know like a rhythm collision afi screw 32 shirts you know uh, she was like, she was, we we're talking on the phone, you know, she was digging anybody but me, you know, and I was like, uh, she was lamenting because uh, our mutual friend's band had canceled her birthday party. And I was like, oh, I, I got a band. And she's like, no, you don't. I was like, yeah, I do. She goes, if you have a band, you can play. It's on Sunday. So I think I literally had four, four days to cut to, it's so like, I saw Dan, he was hanging out at our house after school. I was like, Hey dude, uh, want to start a band? And he goes, okay. I said, want to play Sunday? He's like, okay. And we just kind of plucked people that lived in that house. There was like five or six people, you know, stinky dudes or whatever that lived in this house and uh, in the in the suburbs. You know, this wasn't like some cool Oakland punk warehouse. This is like the Panola suburbs, and we just made a mess. I think there was somebody playing tuba and trumpet at the same time. And it was just this, but we had fun. And, and that was kind of the crux of it was that, you know, however much it wasn't a great, you know, show, if you will, or a great performance or something, <laughs> it made us laugh and we had fun and we had fun together. And Dan and I just started writing more and more. And it wasn't, God, it wasn't maybe about six months later that we recorded a demo and then uh, recorded our first album. Our first EP. That's awesome. <clears throat> um, I mentioned in the intro that Bobby Joey Bola was initially rejected from Gilman Street, um, mainly because post Green Day there was a lot of gatekeepers at Gilman Street regarding what was allowed or not allowed or what fit, you know, in the tiny box of punk. Um, after their explosion, um, you and John Geek of the Flushies formed, and along with uh, Dan, um, <clears throat> formed Spam Records, right? And then um, you formed GeekFest kind of like out of a necessity of creating a platform for yourselves and other bands, including one of my favorites, Gravy Train, um, which also yeah. was uh, cut. Uh, you cut a record of Gravy Train from Spam Records as well, which I think is awesome because um, <clears throat> I think they're such an important, another important band from the Bay Area. Um, I still have a note from Seth. He's like, uh, Corby, thank you for believing in us when no one else did. I just thought they were so so good humorous and just unafraid uh of their of their kind of cartoonish sexuality they were just i i liked i like to think that that band influenced a generation of of young people in the bay area like help helped the helped a generation of kids in, in you know young people in this area kind of just not be afraid of their sexuality or their, themselves uh at, i'm really proud of haven't had anything to do with their first record oh yeah yeah. Well, I mean, it's about building community and just giving back. And yeah. you're, in the, you're in the same boat as them of just like, they deserve to be on the stage as much as I do. And yeah. you know, every voice in the barrier matters. And so. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so for GeekFest, like, what were those shows like? Um, and how did that affect the eSpace scene, like kind of before and after? Well, so we, you know, we wanted to take an ad out Maximum Rock and Roll, you know, which at the time, even though it was a different entity than Gilman, there was still... Tim Yo was still kind of, there was crossover there, right? So we we asked to take an ad out and Tim Yo politely was like, sorry, you're not punk, you know? 
and uh, and he basically, you know, the late the, the the club Gilman said the same thing, and so we were we were we were pretty bummed, you know, because at the time, you know, we we were all big fans of Green Day. They went to our high school, you know, we 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 knew them, you know, pretty well. But they were, I guess, upperclassmen, if you will. So right. we were like, you know, like the best of friends or anything. But we were we were townies together, you know, and so we. Uh, <laughs> We're like, well, what are we going to do? And we, uh, John from Fleshy's, uh, his dad bought a, uh, uh, a generator and we went out to this toxic Superfund site uh, at Point Milade, uh on the on the shoreline of, of Richmond at the Richmond San Rafael Bridge. Started a, uh, a telephone line that still is up called 510 Bad Smut. It's mostly for, it's for some shows, underground shows, but also like, um, you know, rallies and activism and, and things like that. And that was inspired by rave culture, which was like, you know, you want to do underground shows, you don't want to blow up the spot. So, you know, on the flyer, it would say, call call 510 Bad Smut for details. So our rule was basically because Gilman had said we weren't punk was that, you know, Gilman says no sexism, no racism, no homophobia, no drinking, you know, was that you could call us. You didn't. We didn't have to read your lyrics. We didn't have to listen to your music. You could play. Since we got cast out, we were like, you could play. But if you show up, and you're a bad person or an asshole, or you know, we're just you're just not going to play again, right? So this made for <laughs> this. It took about you know, for every one good band like Gravy Train or Dory Threat and the Skirt Heads or Los Rabbis or, you know, uh, we had to go through twenty years. 30 of the worst, you know, bands that you could ever imagine, you know, but <laughs> in that we found our community and then uh, Robert Eggplant of Blatz, uh, who also gave uh, Green Day, you know, uh, he was their first shot playing, you know, an East Bay punk show in his backyard in Pinole. He did the same for us. And then he was having a, a benefit show at Gilman for uh, a, this touring band called Saki. It was to help them continue on tour. And he got us a slot on the show. And, the, you know, maybe the, you know, the restrictions were kind of loosening there at that point or something. And we played our first Gilman show. And then slowly but surely, there were more and more spam bands. There were Sharp Knife and, and you know, the Jocks. And uh, I mean, God, I mean, it's, at a certain point, you know, right before it's, it's inevitable collapse, we were trying to put 40 albums out in one year. And this was due in part to like, Lookout really wasn't putting out, Lookout wasn't the flagship for Gilman anymore. It used to be that, you know, at Gilman, if you were performing and you were participating, you were likely to be represented on, on Lookout, right? There wasn't that thing anymore, you know? And uh, so, you know, Lookout was focused more on kind of hip stuff, you know? And so we, uh, Spam kind of became that refuge before, you know, it was, it wasn't really, if you were, I mean, I, I get, yeah, it wasn't really, if you were it, about, if you were good, it was that about if you were participating. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And then I'd say by 98, 99, Bobby Joe and Bolin, children McNuggets who had been told that we couldn't play Gilman because we weren't punk. We were headlining at Gilman. And so were all the, the, the spam bands, you know? Yeah. It's a, <clears throat> it's, it's like a wild thing of just, 
going from you know not being able to take the stage to being the person that's bringing the, the whole the whole audience with you to the show <laughs> it was super weird because at that time you know it, that was like insomniac era era for green day mm. i guess and so they would come back and they would come down to point Milade. you know this was free all ages usually 15 bands at a geek fest on the shoreline uh no, you know uh, and they would come come out they'd crack their beer open they would be coming home and they you know they had felt alienated kind of from the whole gilman thing you know but they kind of felt because we were like you know coco county contra costa county townies you know they felt home there and they were telling us like i remember mike very vividly going you guys are touring you're playing you know you guys are the new punk and we're like what what are you talking we're not punk. you told us we're not punk you know and you know we, you know, I always kind of joke, you know, it's like, you don't know you're redefining history, you know, until after you redefine it, you know, it's like, we, <laughs> we, we didn't, we didn't realize what was going on when we were doing it, you know, but we wound up becoming the next kind of little thing at Gilman there. It's a way to do it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so also the thing that like in doing my research about you and about, about Bobby Joey Bola, um, I am thoroughly impressed by the output of your band um, that you've done in terms of just like music videos, pressings, tours, and all that, just like an incredible amount of work. And then, then you transferring over to do the documentary and realizing how much work that was. I'm just like, how is Corbett alive? <laughs> how does he ever sleep? <laughs> that, thank you for that. At least somebody in the world sees it. Uh, no, I, I, well, I me, me and your wife, not to make it weird. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Two people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, she she does. I would not have been able to do that movie had, had I not had her telling me, you know, talking me off the ledge, you know, <laughs> like, you know, or or even how much we did with the band. At, at, you know, we I think by you know two thousand when we 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 broke up or we said we went on hiatus during the Bush administration was our joke, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think a lot of kind of demons from my childhood, you know, the abuse and stuff that was catching up to me. We were actually, uh, we, you know, a lot of people would say we didn't know how to, we were being accepted and we didn't know how to accept that. You know, we had been so used to not being a part of things, you know, and then we were selling out Gilman and it was like, I think I don't, I didn't really know how to process that. So it wasn't some knockdown drag out. Actually, there was just a big, long hug and crying. It was like we were about to go on this big tour and we were going to play with like TSOL at one point and at the, on the East Coast. And it was just, and it just all dissolved. But over the, that, like I think two weeks later, uh, the the English guy his that, that I originally wrote songs with, uh, his wife had died and she had uh, two kids who were special needs and uh, they needed to have a benefit. So we got back together and then Gilman was like, Oh hey, we saw you got back together. We need a new sound system, and so that and it was like oh oh god. So we were like everyone's like you know really broke up. It's like well shit. I mean like 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 I don't know what to tell you. Like you know like sorry you know like doing these benefits you know, and uh, but then like over the years like Steve the List would have a birthday or like about once a year something special would happen and we would play right. And then we were also like roommates during that time and and. Uh, I got married and I was working at uh, Berkeley lab for, for the university of Berkeley, where I work, where I work now actually, but back then, and, and uh, the job I had, they put me on night shift and it was really affecting my chemical, my brain and stuff. And my wife was like, 
uh, you know, Melissa, she was like, Hey, you know, you and Dan, you seem to like, you know, hang out a lot. Everything's like really good. And like, why don't you do the band again? I was like, well, cause when we do the band, we don't like just, you know, do the band, you know? And she's like, it doesn't matter. Like you should, you should go full bore, you know, like if you make a nominal amount of money, that's fine. We're, we're doing good, you know, like just do it. And I mean, then it was just, I think we recorded doing part two of a past guest of yours, Craigums. I think from 2009 to what, 2013, we, we might've recorded 60 songs with him. And yeah, we played about four or 500 shows in that time. And we went, we hopped over the pond for the first time. We went to England. We did 10 or so music videos, all, all on, we had no label, no, we had labels, but they, they, you know, oftentimes we would, there would be something, the labels just really wouldn't do any work. They wouldn't, and they, you know, they, they would, they would pay for part of things or something. And so we, we, we tried that for a bit and then we were just like, okay, we're going to do it all ourselves. And then there was this, uh, we, this tour, we had been out for 30 days and our label, we came back and they were like, Hey, we want you guys to go out again. There's this new band on the label. And that label didn't, we were like, okay, well we will, but usually we do all of our press too. And the label didn't, you know, uh, what are you saying? Didn't, they didn't, uh, put up press releases to the weeklies and stuff. So that tour kind of fell flat. We wound up in Seattle and our, our old townie friends, uh, the mystic Knights of the Cobra showed up and they're like 15 people deep and a and like the drummer and the bassist we, we shared with them. And it was just this catastrophic melee. And our, we were about to land back home at the, uh, uh, at our first headlining great American music hall show at San Francisco. Oh, wow. And, it was just, uh, it was just a mess. It was like the the that show in Seattle, we got paid really well. It was like sold out. It was amazing, but there was this cataclysm, and it wasn't between Dan and I who are like you know the main members in the. It, it was just it was rotten, and and I just thought I can't do this anymore. I hit a wall. We were going so long with you know so little support, and doing so much, and which is funny because now, you know. I, I, I don't, I, I meter it like a hobby, if you will. And I'm having more fun and even some of the most unheard of things I could never imagine happening. Like uh, being included in the new love songs video that's coming out with weird Al Yankovic, you know, being, you know, being in the, you know, fifth grade and him being my only friend. And now, now this is happening and, you know, uh, it, it's, uh, but yeah, we came back and we played that show. It was a great show. And we just, uh, I remember putting on an Instagram post basically saying, you know, I thought it was over and it was just, it, and it uh, was done and something. And, it, and this mysterious Instagram account was like something about onto the next horizon or something, something. Turns out I didn't know that the person had been following me for a while and uh, I didn't know who they were. And I, I figured out it was Billy Joe from Green Day. And I'd say a couple weeks later, I got a call. And uh, that's how turned it around happened. But so you know, the dust settled, and and uh, and it kind of went from that to that. And so I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm running all over the map here. <laughs> no, no, you're good. I, I, you're running through questions for me without actually me having to ask anything. So I'm just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep keep doing your thing. Okay. <laughs> um, but 
Yeah. So uh, as you touched on earlier, that Billy, Billy Joe Armstrong was an upperclassman um, and he reached out to you initially to go track down some some really rare Green Day footage um, that you happen to know how to get a hold of. And after delivering the goods, you were asked to make turnaround, um, which was also your directorial debut, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of wild to think about that you said yes to I'm going to do the documentary and holy shit. Now I have to go do the documentary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah go ahead sorry um so in making uh your full length album uh f which you did 15 music videos for um obviously it wasn't your first rodeo in terms of producing motion pictures and a ton of video um what are some of all the things that you had to teach yourself uh and basically scramble to find someone to do for you if you couldn't do it yourself once you took that project on like basically what was going through your head and like what did you have to teach yourself once you said yes to i'm gonna do turn it around Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I look at it as the whole, the whole thing is about, about uh, knowledge and organization. I mean, it, I, I think, you know, Billy called me and he was like, Hey, we're looking for this, this video from 1990. It's in a backyard and like Green Day is playing. And it's like, it, it, it was like, you know, it, it was, it was probably, probably hit one of his favorite times back then, you know, and you look in the crowd, it's like, you know, the guys from neurosis and no effects and it's like and all the east bay cats you know all those folks you know and i knew who had it and the guy was a bobby joe bola fan and i think billy had asked a mutual friend of ours jesse from blatz and jesse was like i i i know i know the guy that has it and like you should ask corbett because like you know he and so I was like, I told Billy, I was like, yeah, he, he, he has it. And I knew that this guy was like one of his guy, Mark, he, he was uh, kind of a, kind of a, a, a belly acre, you know, he's like, yeah, green, green, duh, you know, like a lot of the people in the scene just kind of giving them shit or whatever. And I went up to him and I was like, Hey, Hey, you know, uh, that tape, you know, you have, you know, and he said, you know what, I'm going to give it to you, but I hope that, I hope that something good comes out of it, you know? And, I knew Craigums and Daniel Haig, and who wound up being one of the archivists for the film. Uh, and I, I was like, I know of a bunch of other videos too. And I put it all on a hard drive and I brought it to the studio. And Billy looked at it the next day. He said, he called me and he's like, this is amazing. Like, this is our early history. This is how this, thank you, you know? Yeah, we're, we're thinking about doing a documentary about our early years and, and, the, and the other bands involved and stuff. Do you know anybody who could do it? And uh, I, I, I actually said, yeah, me. And the, I, so I kind of volunteered myself, right? And he goes, I think you're right. I'm going to talk to Mike and I'll talk to you tomorrow. The reason I, you had asked, like, what did I learn? I think when, when Billy told Mike this, they were both aware of the undertaking, you know, that, that when you're talking about all these different bands and all these different stories, I mean, which wound up 150 interviews for like 500 hours of interview footage, 50,000 photos and flyers over the course of five years. I had booked a uh, 12, uh, or I don't know, it was like a 12 date tour for the Frustrators, which was Mike Dern from Green Day's Sideband. And he's like, I want seven bands on this one and, and, and this burlesque troupe and, and let's get. And so I, I organized all that. And he goes, Bobby Joe Bola can, can MC every show, you know? And so it was like, you know, I didn't have very much fun on that tour uh, because I was, you know, doing the work and performing and stuff. But right. I think he had an idea 
that I could handle something like that. And then on Instagram around that time, right before the the the, the band went on hiatus again, I had been doing the Bob Jobola songbook, which was, I think, a couple hundred pages of like 40 artists um, illustrating our songs, you know? So I, I have this penchant for keeping it all in my in, in my line of sight. I don't really... Uh, that's why I mean I'm in a, I'm an administ I'm an executive administrative administrative assistant, you know, uh, at Berkeley Lab with like scientists and and you know philanthropists and all of this stuff. I can kind of I can kind of keep it all in my in my purview, I guess they say, you know. Uh, so I really you know plus I I cared about the history. I was and I think Billy was like I think Corbett can do this because like he's a known quotient in the scene. He's not an outsider, you know? Uh, I mean, what did I learn? I learned that it, that, that you, there's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no one way to do something. In fact, the, uh, uh, there was a few starts where we thought this is how we're going to build it. This is how we're going to put it together. And it wound up being nothing like that, you know, uh, uh, pouring through 500 hours of interview footage, we had to develop our own system of keywords and to like, okay, well, here we are. We, here's the theme of this moment, right? Or in the, of the, here's the theme of this scene. Okay. Well, uh, who haven't we seen in a while? Uh, who, uh, th this is kind of a dude party here. Uh, let's look for, 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 you know, female voices or, or, uh, I think there's an ice cream truck outside. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you're good. Yeah, yeah I, I was just going to say um, what's really what I think is great about the documentary is not only is it not like a cis hat white dude party that you make sure that um, there's a lot of important footnotes, but uh, Spitboy, which is was an all female band, uh, um, got as much airtime as uh, Green Day and Jawbreaker and Op Ivy. Like you in the documentary, you touched on so many other um amazing bands during that time so thank you i, I mean i i think uh, Bill, billy joe only had a few ground ground rules other than that you know people were like well green they must have told you how to how to make it how they wanted to be seen and not at all i mean that was that was one of the coolest things about it was like you know mike and billy they're from the same you know refinery towns that i'm from you know so there was kind of a it was kind of a neat thing to go in there and just you know i was I, I was uh, my the first band I was Gonzo about was was Green Day, you know. So it was a big deal for me, you know. Uh, but he was like, "All voices heard," you know. Uh, uh, don't don't mystify nostalgia. Let's not build this to where any kid watching it will think they missed the boat. They can never make something so cool. Uh, and there was one other rule. <laughs> I can't. It, don't don't focus on the acrimony and the backbiting. Yeah, that you you did your research. Yeah. Like let's, we can get lost in that. And, you know, I think a few people, you know, on the internet were, were like, well, they didn't talk about this and they didn't talk about that. And usually actually that was for continuity reasons. That was like, well, we could go back and we could talk about that. But at this point we talked briefly about that ages ago in this like practically three hour documentary and we're on a whole new train. We, you know, so yeah, I, I, I think we talked about, the, the 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 acrimony a bit but we the east bay can get lost in that i'll tell you that <laughs> yeah. I, I believe it i mean you're sitting there interviewing people and i'm sure you got a bunch of hot takes i'm not here to unpack Ooh, that let me tell you yeah 100 yeah. 
like there was stuff that like you're like oh i hope that footage never gets out because that person said that thing and you know that would be like not good <laughs> yeah so you're right there <laughs> there were some hot takes <laughs> sure. I, I believe it uh but to focus on the positive so uh icky pop narrates um oh. the documentary which is an incredible get um but you also had uh, conversations with both local and international legends, such as Larry Livermore, Robert A. Yeah. Plant, Kirk Hammett, and Kathleen Hanna. Um, and I'm curious, during those interviews, like which ones are like the most surreal and intense to be a part of? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Uh, I think, I think one of the man. I mean. <sighs> God, I, I, when you're, you see those names, I'm like thinking each, each, each person, you know, I would talk about, uh, you know, I, I was pretty good friends with eggplant and I, and I knew Larry briefly, and, you know, uh, he's such a genius and such a good writer. You know, that was, that was definitely a, a, a big deal. I think sitting down with Kirk, a lot of people were like, why, are, why is Kirk in your movie? You know, what did he have to do with East Bay punk? Well, you know, one of the, the earliest venues in the East Bay that played, that let punk play was Ruthie's Inn, West Robinson, uh, where there was metal and punk and then thrash. And so that's why he's in it. And also, too, one of the one of the most like the cultural anthropological kind of uh, reasons I wanted him in it was because the same uh, white supremacist kind of you know, long hair gangs in El Sobrante that beat up Metallica also beat up Primus and Green Day in consecutive decades. <laughs> like, you know, at, at, like in El Sobrante in that region, it was like, and you know, uh, Hemet was a, was a kid of color, you know, he's part Filipino, you know? And so they, he, and so when he, when I told him this, he would, he was like the gravy boys, you know? And, and I was like, yeah. And he, he kind of lit up, you know, it was like, he hadn't thought about that in years, you know, and I just, this region, you know, you're 10 minutes from the center of knowledge in Berkeley, right? That is Berkeley. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, you go 10 minutes outside of San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, you, you're not you're in a place that's not unlike Kansas, you know, and that, yeah. that place also, you know, uh, made for a lot of original music because there wasn't a lot of culture. So, you know, uh, bands like Green Day, Metallica, Primus, all came from here, you know. Uh, so that that was that was a kick, and you know, I remember sitting in my living room and getting this random text, and we had been trying to get Kirk for a while, and uh, it was like, "Hey, uh, yeah, let's do my interview in in Ed's bar." I'm like, "Who is this person?" Ed's bar is this bar in El Sobrani outside of Sherwood Forest, and I was like, I told my wife, I was like, "I think Kirk Hebbett is texting me," you know. That was a surreal moment. One of the co the coolest, well. I, I mean, Iggy was amazing, and that whole experience is amazing. But I think Kathleen was was just the most, probably the most rad. You know, she was so cool. She's she's so kind, uh, so smart, and like the interview was great. And then afterwards, we we were uh, renting our friend's uh, studio. Uh, the folks in Shellshag they had a. a production studio out in, out in New York. Uh, and she, she was like, Hey, I, I got to go to, uh, to practice, to band practice, you know, can you guys give me a ride to band practice? And 
we were heading out to John, John F. Kennedy Airport, and we were, we, we were we were late. And I was like, yeah, of course. And my my crew was like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, dude, like you don't you say no to Kathleen Hanna. <laughs> like, no, like I'm not gonna say no. Like, are you kidding me? Like, and we got to talk more. And she came to our premiere in Los Angeles, and uh, I was running around from like theater to theater. It, like, I was on K Rock that morning, and it sold out in like four or five theaters that night when it was only one showing at the beginning of the night. And uh, I, can't, I think they kept adding them through the day, actually. But she came out, and I was running to some other theater, and she saw it. She goes, hey, Corbett. I was like, what? She goes, good job. And I was like, oh, man. Like, that that was <laughs> that was definitely uh, uh, stands out for me. But Iggy was – actually, Iggy was probably the most surreal. That was the most surreal. I don't even understand how that whole thing happened. <laughs> I mean, I know why it happened, but, like, right. it was also right. just – yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, Iggy Pop is like the guy that Henry Rollins uh, pinches himself over in terms of like, I get to talk to you know Iggy Pop, and I'm sure Billy Joe probably feels the same way. Not to project, but it's funny like how him yeah. and Bowie and other people in that in that era or people anybody from MC5 are like, oh my god, like you know that's those are the people that like make you nerd out a little bit. Completely. When we were verging on a five hour cut, and I was telling Billy, I was like, man, we either make this a series or we get a narrator. To condense themes and he's like well let's think about it okay let's think about a narrator and we were everyone's like well what about somebody from in this scene it's like well if you have tim armstrong do it then everyone's going to be like well why didn't billy joe do it if you have this person do it then why you know you can't have a person from inside the scene so i was like well what about tom waits and uh because he was local and and billy's like that's a good idea you know and then i think maybe from the jarmouche connection or something his brain went and then he called me he's like well what about iggy He's like, we did, uh, you know, three songs on his Skull Ring album a while back. And uh, maybe, you know, he would return the favor. And before I knew it, I was on the phone talking with Iggy Pop. And he was like, come down to my house. And uh, it was just, it was just intense. He, he, he gave us 10 hours that day, I think, in his house, the day after his birthday, I believe. So, you know, he was a little bit uh, maybe wine hungover or something, you know, like, like I don't know, you know, it, it was, it was a, he's a beautiful person. He was so kind uh, to, to give us what he gave us. That's awesome. Um, one thing you touched on earlier, which I think is actually really interesting to talk about is just how Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco seem to kind of be like the hub that people organize at. But then there's so many other bands and people that came from the suburbs or other places around the barrier, like, you know, famously Cliff Burton from Castro Valley and um, yeah. uh, the Love Songs Kids from Pleasanton. Um, it always, it's always funny, like how uh, people grow up outside of the barrier or, you know, part still part of it, but not necessarily in Oakland or in San Francisco or in Berkeley, but then yeah. find their community and the people there. And then, then it becomes their central hub. But that's always been an interesting thing about the barrier is that those hubs seem to like attract um kids and you know kind of that's that's the way that those those bands kind of naturally evolve and, and grow from it's interesting because when i met you know the the love songs guys it was craig was in the band your mother you know and when we first saw them they dropped at a geek fest that was one of the bands they had just got back from a european tour and they were outside it was a generator we didn't know these guys and they were so tight because they just got up to got, just got home from tour and they they played like this 
like sonic metal punk version of Fun Zone by Weird Al Yankovic, the instrumental. And we were just freaking out, geeking out, like, what is this? What? Who are these people? We just fell in instant love, you know? And it's interesting what you're saying because I'm thinking about it. There was Alex Cole, who's comedian, but he was like the zine guy in the crew, you know? And like, and then Joe De Demery, who, who was in Ringworm, and he's a painter. And, you know, uh, Mikey Porter, who went on to play in the Toy Dolls, and, and now he's in Shiza Minnelli, the best named punk band in the world. Nice. Uh, yeah, you know, so they were just this this thing, and they, you know, I think, just like we were, you know, we were in the we were in the, you know, the, the suburbs of Panola where they were like I'm thinking Pleasanton, right? So you you have this thing, and you and you don't let, you know, not being in a cultural hub inhibit you, but you can only kind of do so much there, right? And so you 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 hone it, and you're you're not really influenced by too much outside. The internet was kind of just bubbling, so you're really kind of going on you know what you and your, your your friends are inspiring you right and then you bring your weird semi-unique thing to like the larger hub right you just like that's what gilman was really right it was like suddenly when gilman opened it was like from all these places kids were just flocking from all these little towns and uh and then it became you know that that that, that cultural kind of conduit right yeah, that was the interesting thing uh, in the documentary. Like Tim Armstrong was in New York at the time, and he saw an ad for 94 Gilman. Was like, "Wait, what the hell? <laughs> I'm going back home," which I thought was hilarious. He was bummed out because Basic Radio, uh, you know, they were playing, you know, occasionally at Ruthie's, and they were playing at like Barrington Hall, but you know, they were a bit zany, if I'm not mistaken. They had like a lot of members. There was a lot of kind of they would jump genres, not like Rancid does now, you know. Uh, right. But they just kind of really didn't feel at home. And if you look, one of the coolest things, you know, is because like Rats is like a, they're a pretty serious band, you know. But if you look in those pictures, not just of like the old Murray Bowles pictures at Gilman of early Gilman, you know, 86, 87 or 87, 88. Uh, not only do you see every member of Op Ivy or, or Rancid like on stage in those pictures, you see them in the audience as like gleeful kids you know, covered in confetti and, and, and shredded paper. And like, you know, there's just so much joy and creativity going on at that point. And, you know, it, it, it really isn't about like that, that thing that Billy said, when we started making the movie, it isn't about mystifying something, you know, it's like, it's to you can totally do it. It's not easy, but if you get together with your friends and you keep pushing and you keep creating and you, and you, you keep, uh, pardon me, and you keep your sense of wonder, uh, you, you can make something like that happen for yourself. You know, you can, you can, and, and then you, you'll inspire others to do that. You know, it's, uh, you got to keep it going. Punk is, people say, well, I don't, there's no punk any punk is dead and all this stuff. And I think I heard Billy say, maybe it was like in a Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone interview recently, you know, maybe punk now is like a SoundCloud rapper and you just don't get it. You know, like, you know, you know, it's not about it being for youth culture, you know, but I think it's about punk is an energy, in my opinion. Yeah, it's yeah. To me, punk has always been an ethos and a lifestyle of, um, you know, DIY, obviously being a huge tenant of it. And then also um, uh, something that you say frequently is, you know, asking, not asking for permission, begging for forgiveness in terms of just like 
if you're going to ask who's going to do it, the answer is you. Um, and I think that's like a tenet of what East Bay DIY culture is, is just like, don't, you know, to, to quote Gorilla Biscuits start today. <laughs> yeah. We are, our, our uh, spam records, you know, I think toward the end of it, we uh, had a fictional revolutionary common commandant named Chuke J. Pinedo. And he, uh, we said his motto for spam records uh, uh, was uh, thought plus action equals pro uh, progress. Uh, or simply do shit, do it, just do it. Like if it's in your heart, it's in your head, make it in your hands, make it out here. There's just no, there's no gatekeepers. There's no rules. You know, it's like, except be kind. That's the thing. That's another thing about a lot of us kids who came from the suburbs, you know, we didn't have parents who were like, you know, professors and stuff. So, so it was like, that's what I would encourage a lot in the world. I think it's really great that there's these motions toward uh, people being, uh called out for their for their shit on their shit you know like like if you're if you're spewing hate and you're you're being ableist or sexist or racist you need to be called out on it but you don't need to be cast out like you're like forever going to be that kind of evil you know per person there has to be a a learning curve and and we were lucky enough to have gentle enough people i believe early on who were like Hey, you know, <laughs> we know you come from the sticks, you know, but like, you know, we don't really do that here. Maybe you should think about why you might be doing that, you know? And like, so I don't know. We, we, we say it in our, in our, at the beginning, in the forward of our songbook, you know, you, you can't learn from your history if, if you bury your past. You can't learn from your mistakes if you bury your past. Yeah. So it, it, it's, uh, yeah. That makes sense. Um, so, uh, I saw the I saw the premiere here in Seattle um, in 2017. I loved it a lot. And um, before this conversation, I watched it again. Um, <clears throat> and one thing that like really stuck with me that uh, again talking about pre-internet yeah. <laughs> convers conversations that kind of like were literally happening organically. And it's always funny like how uh, even pre-internet like these conversations were just bubbling all around the Bay Area. Um, but the most interesting part of the documentary is like the latter half where it focuses on how the club famously made a no major label bands role. Um, and the, the punk scene has always kind of had heated conversations about what selling out is. And obviously Green Day is the biggest band that's been affected by that and kind of more or less the reason why Gilman has that role. Um, <clears throat> so from sitting face to face with people that were made or affected by those decisions, what's your personal take on it? Um, especially after having to sit through all the different perspectives of those people. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. It, 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 it's I think Brett Gerowitz said, you know, he answered the question, I believe, in the Spotify documentary about Green Day, you know, are Green Day punk? Well, yes, they're the biggest band in the genre, you know. Uh, I don't know. You know, there's like the the anarcho syndicalist purists of 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 what's left of maximum rock and roll who at times when you know when as as the popularity of punk ebbs and flows it's like we're going to make our our art black and white and our music unlistenable <laughs> simply because what we do is secret you know and then there's the other end of the, of the of the spectrum which is that you know the way i look at it a lot you know we would be called out sometimes for our ambition and i was talking to my bandmate dan you know from bobby joy bola the other day and we were like really what was keeping us going was the excitement about creating that that kind of spark that you get from like uh sharing an idea with a creative peer and then they bounce back 
and then you get really excited about it and then you want to share it with other people that's really what kept us going and then we realized oh wow yeah you know we uh you know dan did go to college eventually um on loans and everything but at that time you know we didn't we didn't have we, we were putting so much work into it it kind of like it was kind of like this is what we're doing we didn't have well-to-do parents or you know we didn't there was it was really just what we were doing so it was like well if we're gonna if this is a small business and we're working class kids i remember coming back to town and and bands that were back here that were our friends were like you know uh buying suits and uh expensive equipment from guitar center and only playing like one show every six months and they're like oh so you guys like really got signed to a label wait i saw you guys play like a house show in like st peter's Florida, st petersburg florida like and it's like yeah we played a house show with like a hundred sweaty kids who like bought all of our shit and like yeah we're 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 not gonna just sit around waiting to find find our audience we're not gonna you know or, or we're gonna go out and get inspired and, and make new friends and like I mean, that's the the best thing that I could ever say that came out of being in a band was touring and just the people that I met and that I still hold dear to this day. You know, uh, as far as whether or not, you know, like selling out is good, it's like I've learned now, you know, as I'm a father and uh, a husband and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, to, you know, killed by desk to reference another podcast, right? You know, like, <laughs> which you know, Craig's uh, also been on, yes. He's been on as well, right? But I, I, I realized that like there is an aspect of like chasing that carrot. You have to like, you have to remember why you're doing it. And I think as I kind of launch back into doing, doing things again, uh, it's, I, I I'm kind of like, wow, like I'm getting that fun feeling again and I'm, I'm able to create with my peers and, but I don't have to like break my neck and stress out about it. And it just so happens that I like, I, I have like a cult following and it, you know, my band does, you know, and like, we did this film and so other eyes might you know if we make something else like you know uh i get a lot of questions from like younger creatives who are like well how how did you do this and how did you, how did you do that and how did you meet this person and i'm like if you if you stick around long enough and you're like you don't even have to be good you can just be like halfway decent at you what you do you're gonna wind up having stories i mean like the people that i mean bobby joe abola one time opened the door and closed the door and, and 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 suddenly this person standing in front of us turns around and it's Henry Kissinger. Okay. Like, you know, just just don't just the world is big and scary, but you gotta go out and you gotta do something. And and like uh you know, and if if it I don't think it's a bad thing to uh try to make a living off of what you love doing. And those Green Day kids, man, I'll tell you what, they I think what was uh Mike was Mike was frying fish. Billy was doing a diaper service. You know, uh, you know, Trey, Trey was next in line to be Bigfoot and Willits. You know, like, <laughs> like you know, like, like, like. Pardon me. Yeah, like it, it, it's a. Uh, you know, they they did, they had no backup plan. There, there's, there. That was what they were they were they were supposed to be doing. You know, so I don't know. I I I, I do see a lot of people. Uh, dreaming the dreamer's dream and chasing the carrot and they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And, uh, they're just going to have to figure it out themselves, you know, but to all those people who would, uh, who would question why, why I was doing what I was doing, I, 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 I wouldn't, I don't, wouldn't take any of it back. So 
I hope that answers yeah. the question. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with you because like the explosion of Green Day, because like uh, I didn't know about Green Day until because I was 11 when Dookie came out, I think. And um, my first exposure to Green Day was Basket Case, watching that on MTV. Um, my episode 16, Emily Whitehurst, similar story where she wasn't part of the Gilman scene, but then she heard basket case for the first time and it changed your life and in a lot of ways that's what brought me to to punk rock as well it was really green day so the to me the legacy of green day in addition to just being a wait these guys are from the bay area this yeah. is our band <laughs> um and and of the generation and not just like oh it's santana or huey lewis or you know and no no sh no shade to those people because you, know, you, know, you know i, I love huey lewis i, yes, I, I do, I do. Like, I do. <laughs> My mom, my mom is a used to be a San, I don't want to say groupie, but she was a Santana um, uh, regular. Uh, I've seen really? Santana twenty five times because of her because Whoa, she's a huge, okay, so she's a huge, huge Santana fan. But the point is, is that like <clears throat> when there's a band that's from your hometown and it's like your band, then yeah. there's so much there's so much hometown pride, and um, there's a lot of hometown pride for Green Day, even with all the weird politics and stuff like that. So. Oh no, it 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 really for for us. And Panol, it's like again, I was an underclassman. I wasn't like best friends with them, you know. But I knew them. Mike had helped me when a when a bully had thrown my backpack under a, a bleacher at high school, you know. And then suddenly they're rocketing out, and you're like, "Whoa, they can get out of this! So you can get out of this town! Holy shit!" You know. And, and 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 then like they play Woodstock, and I remember for some reason we got patched in cable that day, and we were watching it, and we could see the melee, and I remember it the whole stream cutting out right as Mike got tackled and they knocked his teeth out. And I remember we were all just in the house. Like we cared, like it was, a, it was like a big deal. You know, it was like you, you, there is a sense of pride. There's a sense of excitement. It's such a pure, wonderful thing. You know, when some, you realize that, that life, it's like when I met Robin Williams, when I was a kid, you know, I was going through a whole lot, bunch of stuff and uh, I was sitting at, at, a, at a Broadway show in San Francisco and my girlfriend was like, you know, waxing poetic. And she was like, you know, during intermission, if, if I could, if you could meet anyone, you know, living or dead, who would you meet? I, I would want to meet uh, Audrey Hepburn and Raul Julia. And I said, Roger Clemens, who was a Red Sox pitcher at the time, and Robin Williams. And I said, I'm going to go get a, I, I, she goes, oh, those, that's pretty good. And I got up for, uh, to, for, to go get a, a, a what, do you, what do you call this, the program. In the eighth row aisle seat was Robin Williams. And my first impression of him was like, wow, like he's kind of wispy. He's like really kind of, he almost looks brittle. He's not like this big thing on the big screen. He's not like, a, you know, the, the Titan Popeye arms. So those were prosthetic. Okay, he's like a real human, right? And that's the same thing that Green Day did, I think, for a lot of us, where we were like, whoa, it's like, it's like the, you know, the, the universal feeling of, of there being a gate that's being kept, right? it kind of lifts and you feel like it's attainable and you feel like it's, it's possible, you know, like, I don't know. It's uh, I think ambition is uh, underrated. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to round out, round out the conversation, your documentary is coming up on a five year anniversary. Uh, congratulations. Um, with time to breathe. Uh, how do you feel about the project now, now that you've survived it and it's release and, the dust is settled um, other than again, more grain, your beard and your son being born. Um, what does that time and documentary mean to you personally now? I, I immediately think that if I would have made the movie an hour and a half, it, it would have done better commercially. 
like uh, uh, which I, I don't really care about, you know. Uh, but I always, everyone's like, anybody says to me, "Oh, I, I just watched your movie." And I'm like, "Did you take a break? You know, did you? You know, it's, it's almost three hours long, you know, and it's a very esoteric subject, you know." Um, honestly, I, I, we knew we had to make the movie that way. We we cut and we cut and we cut. I mean, there's a great deleted scene on the DVD of uh, there was this record store run by this woman named Non Nichols out in Elsa Brownie. There's no record stores in Elsa Brownie. But she sold cool records like REM and punk and stuff. And there were uh, Jason Bebout from Sam I Am and, and uh, Isocracy says that it turns out that the night uh, the Night Stalker, his girlfriend, lived next to the record store, and so where all the punks would hang out and skate and stuff, the the Night Stalker was hanging out there. Like, Holy shit! Yeah, and so like you know there was so much awesome stuff that we had to cut out. So like what what are we at three forty something I believe. For the film you know uh i do think about its duration but i i get so many people telling me that 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 they love it and that they love it for what it is i think the main thing that we wanted to to show was that you know sure there's all these like successful and inspiring faces in this thing but there's also too the, the people who did the shit work the people who ran the door the people who you know mopped the floors you know uh, some of them who who also happen to be like Tim Armstrong, who would like, you know, sweep the floor after Op Ivy shows. You know, um, I, I I look back on it fondly. At the time, I it was all consuming, and it was it was a whole ball of stress because, you know, after we had gotten picture lock, I spent a good year uh, doing like the legal stuff for it. You know, I believe it was maybe even exactly a hundred clips of music. That I needed to get cleared, and and some of these bands, they they're, you know, there's no, there wasn't anybody to sign for it. You know, you you had to, a lot of punk bands, they just kind of flame out. You know, and like, uh, either folks are, are gone or they're or they just don't care. You know, so it 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 was a lot of work, and I, I think looking back on it now, I'm really, I'm really proud of what we did, and I'm I'm proud of Green Day for taking the risk. You know, for dropping the coin to make something so esoteric, you know, we could have. I always tell people, I was like, we could have made a movie that was like, okay, San Francisco is the birth of punk in the Bay Area. Uh, hardcore emerges, it gets violent. The need for Gilman arises. Gilman arises. Green Day get, or Op Ivy, Op Ivy gets big. Op Ivy dies. Green Day comes up. They get big. The end. It could have just been like that, you know. But we wanted to show Homocore. And we, I thought it was very uh, important to show Miranda July, who won, like, what, the Palme d'Or or something? Like, she did her first play at Gilman. Like, you know, uh, Michael Fronty in the Beatniks. I thought, you know, I, you know, the, I just, he, he was, he, he would open for Op Ivy and, and Fugazi at Gilman. It was like, and then he tells his awesome U2 story in the film, you know? <laughs> He's like, <laughs> Yeah, we were this crappy Gilman band, and then we got plucked by U2 to go on this, you know, tour of the United States. And I think, what does he call? Uh, he calls the Edge Ed. Ed, yeah, he, he with all uh, the whole tour, he was calling the Edge Ed. Yeah, yeah, like you know, I just, yeah, I, I, I'm proud. I'll just, long story short, I'm proud of it. So, what's next for you creatively? Like, where where are you at today? Like, uh, music, anything else? Like, are you just you just happy doing your thing? What my what? Kid are you, is it, around me creatively. My kid is like, 
He's writing scripts. He's writing comics. He's singing along to every song in the car. And, and he's just, uh, and I, I, you know, part of me is like, go to college, be a doctor, you know, but, but I'm like, nah, you know what? I'm not, there's no way I'm going to squash that in him. I also don't want him, you know, to be like a baseball dad and be like, this is how you hold the mic, you know, like, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not going to, uh, but I just want to encourage him in anything he does. So I would say, uh, you know, put, put my, my head into, you know, my day job and suddenly out of the blue, Craigums from the love songs says, Hey, Corbett, Dan, you know, Bobby Joe Bola, uh, we're doing this project, you know, we're trying to get weird Al. They're like, you know, and I, I, I went and got Kirk Hemet for it and like Nardwar's in it. And it's like this, this amazing epic cartoon that's coming out. It's a love songs video, but Bobby Joe Bola gets to be a part of it and weird Al's in it. And it's just amazing. That's coming out. And I, uh, I'm writing a book of short stories, uh, and there are some, there's some music percolating, percolating. There's some, there's some things happening where, uh, it feels really good. I think, uh, after, after the dust of just so much hard work and ambition and, and just kind of running on empty for so long, you know, I think a lot of, for a lot of times the idea of, uh, for a lot of people who are like really kind of creatively ambitious and were who are trying to make a living off of what they love doing to like resign themselves to their creativity being a hobby, which is actually the good part of the whole maximum thing where it's like, you know, this band could be your life. Doesn't mean anything, but like an interpersonal thing, you know, it's like a lot of those maximum bands, they, they really, they keep their day jobs, you know, they don't, they're not trying to chase the carrot, you know, and there's something that can be learned from that too, I think. But I, I'm at a point where I, I'm really excited about writing music and I'm really excited about sharing things creatively again uh, because, yeah, the, the, I think the, the film kind of took it out of me for a little while. Like I needed, a, I needed a big rest and I was a new dad coming out of it. And now I'm, I'm finally, as of like the last four or five months, going, okay, like I think I can do this without breaking my brain and my body and do it for the reasons that I love doing it. And it also just so happens that, you know, a few people will listen to it and, and, and that's exciting, you know? So yeah, that's where I'm at. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so for context, the short is called that sucks yeah. uh, from the love songs, which is coming up pretty soon. Uh, definitely follow love songs on socials. Uh, speaking of which Corbett, before we take off, is there anything else that you'd like to plug before we leave social media sites, cool things happen in your life? Yeah, you can find out more about the movie at eastbaypunk.com. It's at, it's eastbaypunk on uh, Instagram as well. Uh, you can check me out on Corbett Redford at Instagram on Instagram. That's where I'm most kind of uh, busy, I guess. Uh, mostly pictures of my cat and kid, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then uh, uh, you can check out Bobby Joe Bola uh, at bobbyjoebola.com and uh, Bobby Joe Bola on Instagram, Twitter, and the old uh, face space. And if people want to donate to Gilman, the website is they can go to uh, say, well, it was savegilman.org, but 924gilman.org. Okay. Yeah. I was, I couldn't remember which one it was. So that's why I was asking you specifically because are you still part of the board or the part of the? No, I was on the board for a while, uh, mm. co- uh, kind of concurrently with the movie. And we raised $150,000. I figured it was like, if we're going to, 
you know, kind of be so intertwined about the, the history, we might as well use what we're doing to try to like, because the, because the club was really struggling at that time. And I think within that, the course of like three or four years, we raised $150,000 that wound up keeping the club alive for a long time, even going into COVID. So uh, yeah, they, they could use your help though. Uh, 924gilman.org. You can, you can find uh, the hit, hit the donate button. Awesome. Corbett. Thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Nick, thank you. It was excellent. Everybody else, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time.